Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this beautiful mystery that you have unfolded before us. The beautiful truths that we can grasp and understand, but still far beyond our understanding. Truths so simple that even a child can grasp them, but so eternal and so wise that it will take us eternity to revel in them. Thank you for the beauty of a plan that in ages past chose to redeem a fallen, wicked, sinful race. Thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your son Jesus to bear the cross for our sins, to suffer and to die, to be buried and to rise again victoriously on the third day. We thank you that he has ascended and is now at your right hand praying and pleading for us that he sent his Holy Spirit to be here with us. Simple, beautiful truths. So eternal. Still a mystery to us. Help us today as we hear from your word, as we hear it preached and read to us to grasp these truths. If there are any here today who have not made those truths the foundation of their lives through faith in Christ, I ask that today you would do that in them, that you would bring them to faith in Jesus so that in all the ups and downs and trials and pain and suffering of this life, they would have a firm foundation, a living hope in Jesus. And for those of us that do know you today through Christ, we ask that you would open our hearts now to hear your voice through your word. May your spirit speak now, for your servants are listening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And as you do, open in your Bibles to 1 Peter. Only three more messages in our series through 1 Peter this week. And in two weeks, we will conclude before another series begins for the Easter season and beyond. A sermon series have called The Power and the Glory. And uh, what we'll do is we'll just take these scenes in Jesus' life from Palm Sunday and then Good Friday as we go through Holy Week, uh, the resurrection. And then we're going to take some time to look at some of those post-resurrection appearances uh, often overlooked because they come <laughs> after the resurrection, the big thing, and then people skip right to Pentecost. But there's a lot of good stuff in between the resurrection and Pentecost with uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus and the appearance of Jesus in the upper room to Thomas and the others. Lots of wonderful truths for us there. And that series will take us all the way through uh, what we call Pentecost Sunday, celebrating the giving of the Holy Spirit in June. And uh, we'll conclude that series then. So kind of from the cross through Pentecost will be that series, the power and the glory. Looking forward to walking through those scenes from the life and ministry of Jesus. Today in 1 Peter, we're going to address sort of a, a conclusion address to the theme that Peter has really been hinting on throughout the, the whole book to this point. And that is themes of suffering and suffering for doing good, suffering for righteousness' sake, and what it means for Christians to suffer. Looking now back at uh, two years, and it really didn't occur to me until I saw some posts this week on Facebook uh, that it had been right at two years since the pandemic sort of became a reality for us, and all the shutdowns occurred, and 
You know, our church in North Carolina had switched to completely video messages on Sunday, and I know y'all did something very similar to that. But with COVID subsiding, it seems like something else has just taken its place. We end one crisis, and we're in another. And, you know, fully understanding that the media sort of controls the narrative and what we look at and what we pay attention to. Sure, it seems like big, huge things are happening in the world right now that are terrible, and they are. But big, huge, terrible, evil, vile, wicked things are always happening in the world around us. And so while it may seem like one crisis has come and gone and here's another to take its place, there's always crises, there's always suffering, there's always pain, there's always war. And you know in your own lives this morning, I think, that there's always issues within your own life. Physical issues, sure, we prayed for some of those. Emotional issues, mental issues, spiritual issues, interpersonal relationship issues in your marriages, in your homes, families, in your workplace, whatever it is, everyone brings something into the church this morning. Whether it's the cares and the burdens and the crises of the world or that junk that's going on maybe in your life right now. Maybe in the past two years, since things have gotten rough, it seems, in the world, you have experienced personal loss, pain, trials, change. Uh, maybe these things affected you personally. Maybe it was that that affected a loved one that has affected you personally. And I wonder if not a few of us come into the sanctuary this morning feeling unstable or unsure not quite sure what to think of what's going on in the world, specifically in Ukraine and Russia, what to do about it, what do we as Americans do about it, let alone what's going on in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own families. And perhaps if any theme has resonated with you in 1 Peter, maybe it's this one. Maybe as we've gone through 1 Peter, you've really latched on to these themes of suffering and pain, and you say, man, I can relate to that. In one way or another, I know what suffering and pain and loss is in my life recently, this past year, past few years, whatever it is. We've looked to Jesus as our reason and our example. He suffered. He was righteous. He was holy. Yet he suffered. And we say, yes, Jesus is our example. But that still, Pastor Matt, doesn't give me an answer. It doesn't give me a reason for what's going on in my life. Yes, follow Jesus. He is our example. We understand that. But why is God doing this to me? What comfort can I find in this? What hope can I find in this? And Peter, as we start to end this letter, draws his conclusions, speaks about suffering and pain, but again points us to the hope and the joy and the grace that we find in Jesus Christ. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4. Today we'll begin in verse 12. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of the living God. Number one, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Had an argument with Anna just this week about there being an R there in surprise, so now I feel like I have to say it that way, surprised. Don't be surprised, Peter says, when suffering comes upon you. The prosperity gospel, among other things, has 
tilted and perverted the way that many Christians, even what I would call evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing Christians, view suffering. The prosperity gospel says that Christians should not experience sickness. Christians should not experience pain or suffering or poverty. And that these things are things that God does not want for his people. And the only reason the prosperity gospel says that you experience these things is that you don't have enough faith to claim health and wealth and prosperity for yourself and to walk in the victory that God has made for you. Now, it sounds good. It sounds wonderful. Who doesn't want riches and physical health and mental health and all of that to be just at the the tip of your tongue to say, in Jesus' name, I am rich. In Jesus' name, I am healed. I mean, it sounds great, doesn't it? It's just not in the Bible. New age thought has tilted the way we think about suffering. Whether we realize it or not, views from new age thought and Eastern mysticism such as karma have crept into the way Christians think about life and justice and good and bad. And karma is just as simple as this. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Now, it sounds like a worthwhile principle, doesn't it? Almost sounds kind of fair. If you do good things, you get good things. If you do bad things, you get bad things. But what do we do then when people who do good things get bad things? What happens to karma? What happens to this way of thinking? And we've seen this style of thinking be made popular through, well, Oprah, books like The Secret, and other things, The Power of Positive Thinking, that have affected the way even Christians view suffering and pain. That if I just think good things and do good things and have a positive attitude, good things will come to me. And that sounds wonderful until the bad things come to you. And then what do you do with the prosperity gospel? What do you do with karma? What do you do with positive thinking? Well, there's something wrong with me. I'm being too negative. I don't have enough faith. I've got too much sin. And that's why all this bad stuff is happening to me. So I just need to be better. I need to think better, be more positive, be more happy, claim it more in Jesus' name. Whatever it is, ultimately it leads to a lot of despair and hopelessness. And in many cases, it leads people to abandon God altogether because this little system that I was taught was in the Bible has not worked for me. It's so central to let the Bible govern our thoughts. That sounds like a simple concept, doesn't it? We're Christians. We believe the Bible. We should let the Bible determine how we think about things, even suffering. Well, Peter has talked about suffering. In chapter 3, verse 14, he talked about those who suffer for righteousness' sake. In that same chapter, just a few verses later in verse 17, he says those who suffer for doing good. What do we do with that in a prosperity gospel system? What do we do with that in the New Age thought? What does karma have to say for those who do righteously but suffer? Those who do good but suffer? If we let the Bible govern our thoughts, we see verses like 1 Peter 4.12, which says, Since therefore, or sorry, beloved, do not be surprised, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Biblical Christians, when they experience suffering and pain and loss, would remember that. This should be no surprise. This is not shocking. When suffering comes upon a Christian, this is nothing abnormal. We should expect it. We should be ready for it. Now, Peter's language in verse 12 almost seems to be prophetic in nature. As in, he's telling them not to be surprised when maybe a certain fiery trial comes upon them. Now, Peter may be alluding to the persecution that's about to come upon the early church. Remember, he's writing just before the great Neronian persecution begins. Maybe he's referring to that. Maybe not. Maybe he's just saying you should expect trials and suffering all the time. It's not if it happens, it's when it happens. And when it happens, you should not be surprised that it happens. In fact, his whole letter has been devoted to this. Suffering on behalf of believers, for righteousness' sake, for doing good. It wasn't strange for Peter. It wasn't strange for the apostles. It wasn't strange for Jesus. 
In fact, the, new, the whole of the New Testament testifies to the fact that Christians will suffer and we should expect it. Do not be surprised when it happens. If we have a do not in verse 12, it's interesting to see the do in verse 13. Do not be surprised when suffering comes. It will come. Do not be surprised. Do not be shocked. Do not think this is something strange, but what does he tell us to do in verse 13? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So let's contrast the do not with the do. Do not be shocked. Do not be surprised. Do not be angry when you experience suffering. Expect it. Be ready for it. Embrace it. And do embrace it with joy. It's exactly, remember, we've said this a few times, what James says in James 1-2, to rejoice when you are counted worthy to suffer with Christ. Count it all joy. Now, last week, we talked about judgment coming. Everyone will give an account. Everyone will stand before the judge, the righteous, holy judge. And we asked this question last week, are we stewarding that which God has given to us? Are we taking his grace and his mercy and his love, the gifts that he's given us as believers to serve the body of Christ, are we investing those and using those so as to produce fruit so that when that day of judgment comes, we have something to present to our master and to our Lord? Now, Peter brings back in this this looming specter of judgment here in this verse because he says, do not be surprised when you experience suffering, but rejoice. Why? So that you may rejoice when his glory is revealed. Rejoice now in suffering so that you may rejoice then when we see Jesus. Unbelievers, I want to talk to you just for a second. If you've not placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, are you prepared this morning to meet God? I can answer it for you, but I want to ask you, unbeliever, are you prepared to meet God in the state that you're in? In your sin, under condemnation, under God's wrath, and you stand before him right now in judgment, what should you expect from him? You should expect justice. What is right? What is fair? And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, condemnation, God's judgment and his wrath. Unbeliever, that's what you expect from God this morning. And I implore you as we talk about the judgment that is coming, as we talk about the glory of Christ that will be revealed, let that push you this morning to place your faith and your trust in Jesus for salvation. Believers, I want to ask you this morning, are you prepared to give an account of what you've done? Are you prepared to show God with the grace that he's given you in salvation and the spiritual gift that he's given you to serve the body of Christ? Are you prepared to stand before God and to give an account of what you've done with the grace that you have received? Peter says you should rejoice in suffering now so that you may rejoice, and he even doubles down on it, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So that... So that, there's a little Greek clause that tells you that second part of the sentence is why you have the first part of the sentence. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. They're inextricably linked. Rejoice now so that you may rejoice then. For every believer... For every person that knows Jesus, Paul says, those that love his appearing, the end goal is what? To see Jesus. And that brings up this emphatic joy in Peter's mind. Rejoice in your suffering now so that you can rejoice and be glad then. The payday for you, believer, the payday will be much greater than the workday. We share in this suffering now, Peter says, so that we may share in his glory then. 
think it's why Peter starts this section reminding us of who we are. Look at the beginning of verse 12 again. How does he address us? Beloved. Beloved of Peter? Sure, he loves believers. He loves those to whom he is writing, but who are we talking about here? The beloved of God. He wants us to understand at the outset here, talking about pain and suffering and hardships and trials, he wants us to remember who we are and whose we are. You are the beloved of God. Yes, you are outcasts. Yes, we are exiles, but we're not just exiles. Chapter 1, verse 1 calls us what? Elect exiles. We're not just a people wandering in the wilderness, though we are not at home in this world. Chapter 3, verse 9 tells us we're God's own people. We're his holy people. We're his chosen people. We are his precious people. I know this is a common, just a kind of cliche concept for believers here today, something that seems so basic, but God loves you. Believer, God loves you. It's a truth that is clear in all of 1 Peter. And the beautiful thing about that being clear in 1 Peter is that it's true regardless of the suffering and the circumstances and the hardships and the trials. Peter is presenting both here. God loves you and he is making you like Jesus, but there will be hardships and suffering and trials and pain. Those do not negate this. You have a living hope and a God who loves you and cares for you and is keeping you even in the midst of suffering and pain and hardships and trials. In fact, Peter says it that way in chapter 1, verse 4. We have an inheritance that is being kept. Listen, it is kept for us in heaven, unfading, undefiled, doesn't pass away. Nothing can touch it, not even the suffering in your life right now. But it's not just an it that God keeps. It is a who. He keeps our inheritance in verse 4, but then in verse 5 it says, Who we are being kept by God's power until that day. It's glorious, and it's both of them. God is keeping our inheritance for us, but God is also keeping us. Why? Well, because we're his chosen people. We are his elect exiles. We are his beloved children. Have you stopped today, no matter what's going on in your life, have you stopped today to think, God loves me? Believer, have you stopped this morning to think, even in all the singing and all the preaching and all the stuff we do, have you stopped to think of something so simple as to say to yourself, God loves me? Not ignoring your pain or your suffering. Listen, in spite of your suffering, maybe even by your suffering. God loves me, and God is making me more like Jesus because that was his plan from all eternity. Romans eight twenty nine says it this way, those whom he foreknew, those whom he knew beforehand, he also predestined to what? To be conformed into the image of his son. You wrap your mind around that this morning. That was God's plan for you from eternity past. He knew you and he had set you apart to make you like Jesus. Why? Because he loves you. This morning, despite your suffering through your suffering, and even by your suffering, God is doing this in you because he loves you. Nothing else this morning needs to make sense about your suffering. You understand that? As a pastor, as other pastors, I'm sure, get questions all the time from hurting people. Why is this happening to me? We welcome the question. Don't get me wrong. We understand the question. We ask that question too when bad things happen to us or to people we love. Why is this happening? 
And it's frustrating sometimes as a Christian, as a believer, as a pastor, to have to tell someone, I don't know why this is happening to you. I don't know why this is happening to your loved one or your child. I don't know why this has taken place in your life. I don't know. And as frustrating as that can be for you, to not understand the why and the ins and the outs about why this something is going on in your life that's not pleasant, that hurts, that, that stinks, at the end of the day, doesn't it suffice to say this? I don't know much about what's going on right now, but I know God loves me. And I know that he's making me like Jesus. And I know it doesn't answer all the questions. But doesn't that provide that comfort that God is working even when we don't understand how he is working? He's making you like Jesus because he loves you and he's loved you from all eternity. So no matter the trials, the sorrows here, you can rejoice that God is making you like Jesus and God is bringing you to Jesus. So that verse 13 is such good news. When his glory is revealed, you will see his face and it will be worth it all. The gospel song that says that it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Trials of life will pass. Nothing will matter. No more pain, no more suffering. Was the last line say, when we see Christ. Don't be surprised at suffering. Rejoice in it so that you can rejoice on that day when we see Jesus. Number two, a blessing or a curse. Sitting here talking a lot about suffering, and it sounds like, well, that's the curse we have to overcome. Have you ever thought about suffering as a blessing? Jesus surely did. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he said this to his disciples. Blessed, you know what that means? Happy are those Happy are those who are persecuted for what? For doing evil? No, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, happy are those. Happy are you when you are persecuted and hated on my account. Peter almost says that verbatim here in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, it's interesting that Peter nearly almost quotes Jesus directly. It's interesting because we don't know by Peter's time writing this that they had the gospel of Matthew as we know it clearly written out for everyone. It's interesting to see these what we call Jesus traditions, whether it was an oral tradition or whether it was something that was actually written down. Maybe it was fragments of stories and lessons that Jesus taught that would be compiled into those gospels. Either way, it's interesting to read this, this epistle and see Peter almost quoting from the gospel of Matthew here. When Jesus says, blessed are you when you're insulted for me, Peter says, blessed are you when you are insulted for the name of Christ because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It reminds Christians of where true happiness is found. Not the fleshly indulgences we looked at last week in verse 3, the drunkenness and the parties and the revelries, but true Christian joy is found, listen, in suffering with and for Jesus. What did Jesus say is yours in your suffering? He said, blessed are you when you suffer, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Peter says, blessed are you when you suffer, because the spirit of power and of God and of glory rests upon you. Listen, believer, when you stand for the king and for his kingdom, there will be a cost. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. Don't be surprised. Expect it. When you desire to live for Jesus, you will be persecuted. There is a cost, but there's also a great blessing. Because as you suffer with and for Jesus, for the kingdom, you can know that the kingdom of your, is yours, and you can know that the Spirit of God is yours. I don't quite know how to explain what it means to know that the Spirit of God resting upon me evidences itself in suffering. I know that doesn't make any sense to an earthly mindset, but it surely made sense to Jesus. 
You remember when Jesus was in the synagogue? One of his first sermons that we have recorded, he opened the scroll. He read from Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach to the captive and to bring good news to the poor. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Where would that spirit take him? To a lonely hill and to a bloody cross and to a tomb. So I don't quite know how to equate that. The spirit resting upon you brings suffering. But Jesus understood it and he embraced it. And Peter tells us to do the same. You are blessed when you suffer with and for Jesus. Because not only can you know, as Jesus said, that the kingdom is yours. But as Peter says, you can know that the spirit of God rests upon you. And when you suffer with and for Jesus, you know that you're bearing the cross of the king. And that you will see the glory of his kingdom. But, there's an all-important but in this verse that I think is worth remembering. You see the word but in the Bible, it's always separating ideas, right? Makes sense? Salvation, damnation, life, death, heaven, hell. This is who you were, but God has done this. I think this is an important but here too. In verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler. He said back in chapter 3, verse 14, right, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, be sure your suffering is for Jesus' sake, that you're being insulted for Jesus' sake, that your suffering is for doing good. We cannot equate that. Listen, when you suffer for the mess that you bring on yourself. All Christians are so quick to start naming and claiming and quoting Psalms when they're facing the consequences of their own actions, when they've done something foolish and they're reaping the harvest of it and they start saying, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And God says, no, 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 you did this to yourself. Peter says, yes, suffer for doing good. Suffer for righteousness' sake. Count it joy. Bear the cross. You know that God and heaven and glory are yours. But if you suffer for doing evil, you're just reaping the benefits and reaping the consequences of your own stupid choices. And Peter says, there's no blessing in that. Peter says, if you do that, you've made your own bed and now you must lie in it. How many times in our lives do we experience suffering, what we would call trials or obstacles, not because of our stand with Christ, but because of our own sinfulness and disobedience? Or how many times do we suffer because of a failure to obey or to do what God has commanded? And I would warn you this morning that before you begin to play the victim card in all this and to wallow in self-pity and my trials and my suffering, maybe first we just need to repent. Maybe this is something you brought on yourself and you need to take a step back, hold yourself accountable for it, let someone else hold you accountable, repent before God, ask for his mercy, ask for his forgiveness, get right with God, get, this is all important right here, get right with others, whoever you've wronged, and then live a life of obedience. Suffering, when you're just suffering your own consequences, is no excuse to throw a pity party for yourself. Suffering for doing evil should be an invitation to repent. It's God's warning sign. Turn away from this. Trusting as we live holy lives, of righteousness. As we suffer, we're made more like Jesus. Verse 16, Peter seems to indicate that being called a Christian at that time was not a nice thing. It was more of a pejorative term to make fun of people. The first time we see this is in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, when it says that was the first time believers were called Christians in Antioch just means a Christ follower. 
And they probably didn't mean it in a positive way. You mean you follow the crucified guy? The one who Pilate killed? That's your guy? You Christian? Peter says, we gladly receive that. You might have meant it as an insult. We count it as a joy to follow that crucified guy. Peter says we should glory in it. When you're ridiculed for following that crucified king, maybe when you suffer the same fate, when you're persecuted, when you're hated, when you're reviled, people around the world even today are being killed for the name of Christ. If that were to come upon you and to come upon us, are you following that guy who suffered the same thing? Peter says, don't be ashamed of it. When the world says, you follow the Jesus guy, you say, absolutely, I follow the Jesus guy who was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day. I ask this often, but I think it's such a good New Testament question. If you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? That sounds silly, but think about it. Those who work around you, students, those that are in your classrooms, your teachers, your teachers especially, your parents. Uh, I don't know if there'd be enough evidence to convict some if you ask their parents. All of us, those who are around us in our circle of influence, our friends, our coworkers, whoever it is, if you were to ask them, hey, this person claims to be a Christian, would they say, oh, yeah. Yes, they are. They, they don't do this. They do this. They go to church. They do. There'd be enough evidence to pack in there and say they live the life they claim to believe. Or would it be a surprise to them? And you'd say, I'm going to pick on Cameron because he's just right there looking at me. You say, say, did you know that Cameron was a Christian? And they say, Cameron? No. <laughs> Not Cameron. I don't, even, I don't think so. What would your friends and your coworkers have to say if the charge was brought against you that you follow Jesus? Would it be a wholehearted, oh, absolutely they do? Or would it be doubt? Think of the evidence that you show to the watching world, especially in your suffering, especially in your hardships. Do you take up your cross and follow him with joy? What is your response in those hard times? Do you bless? Do you show kindness? you show love and mercy and grace? Listen, believer, this is important. Or do you berate people? Are you whiny? Are you known as the complainer to those around you? Do you respond to the suffering in your life with bitterness and anger towards others and maybe even towards God? This repetitive theme in Peter's letter of submission comes into play here. Because we think of Jesus who was in agony in the garden and who surely prayed, let this cup pass from me. You remember what came next? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I wonder if that's your prayer to a watching world, even in the midst of trials and suffering. God, not my will, but yours like a Christian should be. And Peter says, don't be ashamed of that name, but glory in it. And make sure it makes sense to those around you. Number three, we see a sobering reminder in verses 17 and 18. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now we're okay with judgment on sinners. We're okay with judgment for the wicked, for the disobedient, But for the church, judgment for the church, this is a striking section, a striking warning. Because Peter says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Just a kind of a veiled term for the church. Would have referred to the house of God, the temple in the Old Testament. Now Peter applies that to the church of God. And it's time for judgment to begin there. 
Seems like he might be referencing some of the minor prophets, specifically Ezekiel and Malachi, who talked about God coming to discern and to judge his own people, to separate the wheat from the chaff and the sheep from the goats. All these images that Jesus used, the prophets used, to show this time of coming judgment even for the people of God. And this passage from Peter is dark and it's confusing, but it's also sobering. There's an urgent call for even us believers to obey now because judgment is coming. Now, we don't want to confuse what kind of judgment is coming. We look at Malachi chapter 3. We see this series of questions. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears Watch this, though, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. This is not a coming judgment for the church of condemnation and punishment. For those who belong to Christ, the judgment that God will pour out on the church is not what we call punitive. It's not payment for sins. Jesus has done that. Then what is it? It's refining. It is the fire of God evidenced in suffering and trials and hardships on believers, the judgment of God coming not to condemn, but to purify. Not to cast away, but to draw closer. God comes to separate. He comes into his church to separate sheep from goats, false converts from true converts. And as that judgment and that suffering is poured out even in the church, You'll see the difference real quick. You'll see the difference real quick. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, these these people thought they knew Jesus. When Jesus talks about that day of judgment, he pictures these people saying, Oh, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty wonders in your name? Did we not minister in your name? You see what Jesus says to them? Depart from me. Because I never knew you. God will at times send his church through the fire. He has sent his church and his churches through the fire. But it is for the purpose of purification. To burn off the dross and the junk and the trash. When, however, this judgment comes, it's interesting to note that This purifying fire of God's judgment on his people burns away unbelievers. Listen to me. You can have a church of thousands. A church of thousands that is full of false converts. A church of thousands that is lulled into a false sense of security because of something they've done or something they said. You're a Christian. You're good to go. Come on in the church. We're not going to place too much of a burden on you. No obedience, no holiness, none of that stuff. Just come on in. You can have a church of of thousands. And this is not every church of a thousand or whatever. You can have a church, though, of thousands that does not know Jesus. You can have a church of ten that is healthier than that church of thousands. You understand that? Because if these people truly know the gospel and truly know who Jesus is and they're following him and living for him and this church is deluded, this church is healthier, even if they have only 10 people. Jesus says there's coming a day when there'll be many who think they know him that will be sent away because they don't know him. And oh, how these times of purification and suffering show that difference. You have a vibrant, healthy, growing church, it seems. Let some suffering come upon that church. Let some pressure or persecution come upon that church. You'll see where the line is drawn very quickly. I think that's what Peter means here when he says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Let's see who truly belongs to Jesus. And he says, listen, if it begins there, amidst God's own people, against his own church, how dreadful will the outcome be for the world? 
If God doesn't spare his own people, but disciplines them to make them more like Jesus, how much more dreadful will that condemnation be for the world? And that's what he says in verse 18, quoting from Proverbs eleven thirty-one: If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will happen of the unbeliever? Now, this word scarcely doesn't mean that you're barely saved. It means that through much trial, through many hardships, I thought of the song Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. He's brought me from so far, and he's bringing me all the way to glory. And if believers are saved through those trials, through many trials, what will become of unbelievers in those similar trials? We know that as believers, these trials are making us more like Jesus. But what is it for an unbeliever but a foretaste of hell? Maybe you need a wake-up call this morning. Maybe some of you need a literal wake-up call this morning. Maybe we need a spiritual wake-up call this morning. Believer, believers, if you're lax in your striving for holiness... If you're lax in your affections and your killing of sin and your sanctification, I don't want you to be deceived this morning and think that God is oblivious to that. A sobering word for believers here this morning. Do not think that if you belong to Jesus, God is oblivious to your sins. He will purify you. He will discipline you. And it will hurt but the end result is for you to be like Jesus and if that's you today believer falling away backsliding whatever those religious terms we want to use are from Jesus I urge you today to repent to seek God's forgiveness to seek restoration with God and with whoever you've wronged maybe the question though this morning is do you even belong to Jesus at all would you simply be consumed by the fires of this judgment? And the Bible asks us this question. It says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. If judgment is coming to God's own house as a refining fire of purification, what's going to happen to those outside the house? If that judgment's coming on God's own people, what's going to come to those who do not belong to him? And the charge to you today is get in the house Get into Christ. Lastly, just one verse, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter says, now. That always tells you, here's what you do with this. Here's all the information. Now. Therefore. What does he say? Walk in God's will. Now that you understand that God loves you and you belong to him and you're his chosen people and he's making you holy and he's making you like Jesus, even if it means suffering, now that you know that, walk in his will and entrust yourself. That word is so interesting, entrust. Not just to trust God, though that's true. We do trust God, but entrust yourself to him. To commit yourself to give yourself over to him because he is trustworthy. And notice how Peter refers to God here. It's unique, really, in all the New Testament. Your faithful creator. Why not use the phrases we've used so far? God, Father, Master, Lord. Why here, God is our faithful creator? I think Peter knows we need a reminder of who he is. This one who loves us, this one who is our Father, is the creator of all things. And he's the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who upholds all things by his own power. He made all things, he sustains all things, he holds all things together. And listen, here's the good news, he is sustaining you. Why not trust him? Why not trust him? I want to ask you this morning, church, what cross you're bearing today. What unseen, unspoken pain or trial or burden are you carrying today? And I want to ask you, are you tempted to despair? 
Are you tempted into hopelessness to be bitter, to be angry? Maybe today you just need to remember whose you are and what he's doing in you. You need to remember whose name you bear as a Christian. You need to remember the cross he bore for you. And you need to take up your cross and follow him. Embrace, believer, what he is doing in you today for your good and for his glory. And whatever you bear today, here's the good news. He loves you and you can trust him. Charles Spurgeon says, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. Whatever burden you're bearing today, whatever cross you're bearing today, the invitation for you, believer, is simple. God loves you. He's making you like Jesus. And you can trust him. So leave it there. Just leave it there. Unbeliever this morning, you don't know what sense to make of the world and pain and suffering. And and perhaps I've not made a lot of sense of it myself this morning except to say there is a God who loves you and who sent Jesus to bear the sins of humanity. Place your faith and your trust in him today. It won't make the suffering go away. It won't necessarily make the pain stop. But it brings you into that living hope through Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for prayer. And as we do, I'm going to read a portion of a prayer from this wonderful Puritan prayer book called The Valley of Vision. I think it very much sums up what we've talked about today. Bow your heads in prayer with me before we sing. I'm just going to read this short prayer. O God, whose will conquers all, there is no comfort in anything apart from enjoying Thee and being engaged in Thy service. Thou art all in all, and all enjoyments are what to me Thou makest them and no more. I am pleased with Thy will, whatever it is, or should be in all respects. And if thou dost bidst me decide for myself in any affair, I would choose to refer all to thee. For thou art infinitely wise and cannot do amiss, as I am in danger of doing. I rejoice to think that all things are at thy disposal, and it delights me to leave them there. Then prayer turns wholly into praise, and all I can do is to adore and bless thee. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.